Hello, I'm Ethan Devitt. And I'm Nick Spencer of Gordian Advice. And welcome to our final podcast in our special six-part podcast series focused on the importance and scale of biodiversity loss and what we as investors can do to try to address it. Throughout our series so far, we have heard why biodiversity is important. Well, if we look at ecosystems, these are composed of complex webs of different species, and they all exist in a delicate balance, and they're also interdependent in numerous ways. Now, high levels of biodiversity enable ecosystem services to function effectively. And by ecosystem services, we mean things that are absolutely fundamental to life, such as, well, oxygen production, clean air, the water cycle, also the provision of food. Healthy and biodiverse soils enable the recycling of organic matter, carbon sequestration, and the regulation of nutrients so that food crops but also other plants can grow. Now, it's, it's really important to understand that biodiversity, which, as we said before, is the degree of variability, enables individual species and whole ecosystems to be resilient and adapt to changes in external condition. And this capacity is essential, and it's especially important now as climate change alters temperatures, precipitation patterns, as well as the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. So you can think of biodiversity as enhancing the productivity of ecosystem services and increasing resilience in the face of shock. Why the oceans and the planet's waters are such an essential part of the solution? In my opinion, and I think in many scientific opinions, protecting the ocean is vital for humanity's survival. The planet doesn't only provide half the oxygen we breathe and absorbs more than half the carbon, but it regulates the planetary systems. So ensuring that there is a healthy marine ecosystem and a functioning ocean is the single most important thing we need to do to protect life on Earth, to mitigate the climate crisis. And why deforestation poses such a threat? Of course, I think everybody knows that Deforestation is a huge issue for climate change. You know, standing rainforests have a important role in absorbing the carbon dioxide emissions that are produced by, by human and industrial operations. But what most people don't recognize is that they also have a critical role in preserving all sorts of natural processes and biodiversity. They regulate the fall of rain and other weather processes. They keep water in the soil, especially in many of the natural environments in Indonesia, which are not you know, just tropical rainforests, but peat forests, which play a very important role in regulating moisture. And of course, they're also home to an incredible array of biodiversity, including many charismatic and unfortunately endangered animals, which I think people listening to this podcast will be very familiar with, animals such as the tiger, the elephant, the orangutan, that have become very much poster children, I would say, for deforestation that's going on all across the globe. We have learned why agriculture must be more sustainable in order to address biodiversity loss and ensure that the right level of food production can be supported. Our modern industrial approach to agriculture, which is heavily mechanized, uh, involves turning the soil regularly and involves a chemical-led approach to fertility, is fundamentally degenerative in terms of its impact on the soil. It allows for soil erosion by wind and water, and it allows for the systematic reduction in the natural fertility of the soil. 
And this has pretty profound consequences, as you say, on, on economic, health, and environmental levels. Economically, over the last decade in Europe, the net farm profitability of Europe's farms on average has reduced by 25%. And fundamentally, that is because farmers operating in a conventional system are having to use more and more increasingly expensive inputs, synthetic fertilizers and agrochemicals, in order to stand still, to make up for the loss of soil quality and produce the same yields they did the year before. So we have a profitability crisis at farm level, but we also have some very significant what economists call externalities as a result of conventional or modern industrial farming. We have human health consequences where there are now increasingly serious concerns about the links between the toxicity of our natural environments as a result of agrochemical use and various human diseases, including cancers. There are significant concerns about the nutritional value and density of the food that we're producing and consuming today. And then when we think environmentally, we have agriculture today being a significant part of the climate problem, 25% or, or so of global greenhouse gas emissions, a significant driver of biodiversity loss because modern industrial systems, in order to focus primarily on yield production, thrive on monocultures without any other life in the system. And as I've said, we have consequences on the fundamental structure and quality of the soil. We look at the extent of the damage from the world's sixth mass extinction event that we are living through and ask whether COVID-19 has made a difference to levels of awareness of this problem. We are actually in the middle of the sixth extinction crisis, the fifth one being the disappearance of the dinosaurs. So it's a very serious situation for animals, for plants and for the planet. It's flora and fauna. So the extinction crisis is not just animals, it's fish. It's insects, particularly we're in the middle of a, an insect apocalypse with, you know, 70, 80% of insect population has been wiped out in recent years, when the last 20 years or so. In plants, you know, there are all sorts of worrying issues. So, for example, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, we rely very heavily in medicines on plants from tropical areas, etc., which are at threat. So... It isn't just animals at all. It's, it's everything, actually. Biodiversity, which is all living things, you know, plants, animals, fish, things in the water, things on land, things in the air. About 18 months ago, biodiversity as an issue, certainly in the investment industry and in accounting, was starting to become more important, become acknowledged as a very, very significant issue. And... The onset of the pandemic a year ago has accelerated that change. It's been a significant catalyst in raising awareness of the importance of biodiversity. The linkages, according to the scientists, are very, very significant between the creation and spread of pandemics, zoonotic diseases and biodiversity loss. This final episode is dedicated to looking to the future, the kind of solutions that we are currently working with and how we might reimagine the problem. A first step is to change our thinking. I spoke with Warren Maroon on the Extinction Podcast, Episode 5, who is a colleague and co-author of Jill Atkins of Sheffield University. 
Warren is based at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. I spoke with him about encouraging companies to take a truly integrated approach in their accounting and corporate governance, which not only increases awareness of impact and accountability, but can also shape the company's direction and strategy. We were interviewing people for various research projects. And when we took a step back and actually looked at those interviews and and the discussions that we had, we very quickly realized that this integrated reporting was going hand in hand with substantive changes to what I like to call the actual accounting and management infrastructure. Examples of companies that had actually invested in systems to track, for example, their water usage and their energy consumption, to quantify the amount of water and energy that they were using, identify the specific segments in the business where that consumption was taking place, start to monitor trends in those resources being used and how those resources were being used, some indication of the companies trying to build those things into their actual costing, actually work out how much these resources inform the direct and indirect costs of their goods and services and how that in turn impacted the pricing. We also found examples of companies thinking about how energy reduction and and reduced water consumption could be used to position themselves strategically. Sort of say, well, we are capable of producing product X. We know our competitor also produces product X, but our product is more sustainable. Our product has has fewer harmful impacts from the social perspective and from the environmental perspective in terms of that triple context. I asked him whether this approach ever receives pushback and where this pushback comes from. So, as I said, I've really sort of dealt with the two extremes. I mean, there are some companies that that have sort of continued to operate under the assumption that integrated reporting, integrated thinking is a fad. It's something that's being done as as part of a, a sort of a move towards being more politically and socially correct and that it isn't actually part of their business model. And they continue to sort of see the managing of social and environmental problems as something that falls exclusively within the ambit of the state. So government is responsible for the social and environmental problems, and we are responsible for managing the economy. In the traditional view of we pay our taxes over to government, and one of the reasons why we do that is to allow them to go about and implement all of these important social and environmental initiatives. And so, yes, there are companies that are very much along the view of, of integrated reporting as a type of grudge purchase. It's something that we we only do because it, it's perceived as being a requirement of the codes of corporate governance, and in terms, it's perceived as being a requirement of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. They interpret it in a very legalistic way, rather than something that can actually change the way the business functions. This goes hand in hand with the fact that it can be very difficult for businesses, their managers, and their investors as well, to sort of see the long-term benefit that comes from investing in an integrated thinking philosophy. I mean, if we go back to some of the case studies where companies have expanded their accounting systems to start tracking different social and environmental issues, that doesn't come for free. It often requires significant research and development. There's an initial capital outlay. It it takes time and money to implement these systems. You often have to go and hire additional people. Uh, Not all of those people are necessarily accounted. You might, for example, end up with a a biologist and an engineer and a a climatologist providing feedback as as part of an interdisciplinary team. And that comes with all sorts of of management challenges and the complexities of managing these people with very different perspectives on how businesses should be doing things. So there's a significant investment in time and, and cost up front that might only start to pay dividends 
several years down the line, where the business model now begins to, or the business model becomes more resilient, it becomes more robust, you start penetrating new markets because you've changed the way your product is perceived, you've been able to reduce costs, and therefore you're starting to improve your return on the investment in the direct financial sense. And in some cases, when it comes to, to actually tackling serious social and environmental challenges, like extinction of species. It's not a case of you implement a policy and magically the problem is solved. It can take several years of very hard engagement with, with different stakeholders, including NGOs, states, and environmental experts, before you can actually see tangible results from that investment. And I think that that's possibly one of the reasons why you still have companies that are still quite hesitant about integrated thinking and integrated reporting. I'd probably also add that it's not only something that we're seeing, or we're not only seeing resistance at, at the corporate level, at the company level, we also see some resistance among assurance providers and some, some resistance among the sort of formal investor community. I mean, there are some assurance providers who are still very much of the view that assurance is specific to financial information only, but that the cost and the time required to assure this non-financial information doesn't justify the benefits. And there are some finance providers or investors and analysts that, that we've been engaging with as part of our research who still today tell us that they focus predominantly on the financial information and they see the social and environmental issues as being of secondary importance. Now, the good news is that they've stopped saying that it is of no importance, but they still see it as being of secondary importance and not necessarily something that, that's taken into consideration or given the same weight as certain financial indicators would be in the investment and appraisal process. I mean, the exact reasons for that, again, difficult to answer, but I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to integrated thinking, integrated reporting, and of course the application of that to extinction of species, is that it's very difficult to assign a dollar value to these things. We've got the tools to take risk, to quantify risks with measures like beta, and we've got really sophisticated methodologies which we can use to lever and unlever those betas. But when it comes to, to taking these environmental and social issues and building that into the risk assessment and management process, it's a very qualitative and subjective area. By its nature, it's inherently more complex than just taking a directly observed financial measures that you can get out of a database and building that into your valuation risk appraisal process. And I think that that complexity, again, with the, with the consequences for for cost and, and time investment means that there is still a degree of resistance to building these things into the formal ways in which businesses are managed and the formal ways in which the risk and the return on the investment is being understood and calculated. We then talked about some examples of how companies have used the integrated approach to have a positive impact on addressing biodiversity loss. We've got one company that is directly dependent on extracting or harvesting natural resources, which it then converts into different types of goods. Some of them are consumed and or some of them are eaten and some of them are just sort of used. And what the company has done is it's actually gone and had a look at exactly which plant and animal species it harvests. It's gone through the exercise of actively approaching one of the major environmental bodies in South Africa, an NGO. It's partnered with that NGO. The NGO sends the environmental experts to assist them in identifying those plant and animal species which are at greatest risk of extinction. It's then gone through a research process of trying to find substitutes. So if species X is highly endangered, let's not rely on species X for producing whatever product. Let's instead try and see if we can find some type of replacement. Or let's see if we can try and find ways 
of creating a breeding or cultivation process where we can grow this particular species rather than harvesting it in the wild. So that's the first step. Then they went about changing their production processes accordingly, and we've been speaking about assurance. And in this particular case, the NGO actually acts as the assurance provider because they send out a, a biologist, and this biologist goes with the teams, the actual workers who are involved in harvesting the raw materials, to make sure that when those harvests are taking place, you don't accidentally end up with people incorrectly harvesting something. So very often, it's not a case of the company wants to cause environmental damage. It's a case of these two species might actually look very, very similar. And to a layman, it's almost impossible to differentiate between them. So they send out an environmental expert who actually carries out a type of informal audit, making sure that, that the correct items are being harvested. They've really taken the process all the way up through the value chain because they've now gone to their immediate supplier or to their customer and said, well, look, we're changing the way we actually do things. And these are the reasons for us changing. And let's actually engage in a joint marketing program where together we approach the end consumer, normal people who are actually buying our products in supermarkets. Let's make them aware of what the problem is, what we're actually doing about the problem, and what it is that these people can actually do as ordinary consumers to help address this biological and, and environmental issue just by changing their consumer habits and altering the way they understand the goods and services that they are purchasing. And that has really come full circle. Companies sort of started off by understanding that there is an environmental risk. In other words, that it's manufactured and natural capital management and utilization has a direct impact on the environment. It's been understood as a risk, but at the same time, the company has had a look for, for opportunities, ways of mitigating the risk. It's partnered with an NGO to help it quantify the risk and come up with solutions. It's developed a formal policy, which is now being implemented. That policy is subject to some type of assurance. There's extensive stakeholder engagement to make sure that customers, all the way up to the final customer in the value chain, the final consumer is aware of the changes that are taking place. These people have been engaged either directly or through focus groups to make sure that we understand that the company understands how they perceive the, the changes to the goods and services being offered. And in turn, the company starts to benefit from improved sales, improved press coverage, better relationship with stakeholders, and of course, reduce environmental impact, which ironically actually ended up lowering their costs. Because one of the biggest issues was to say, well, you know, if we do all of these things, it costs money. You know, you can't expect the NGO to, to carry the costs of sending out these experts. There has to be some contribution to them, at least to cover their costs. If we change the way we produce these different goods and services, there may be cost implications. But what they've actually found is that because this, these particular species that they were relying on were becoming ever more scarce, it was taking more time and more effort to actually harvest them and process them. And now through the various mechanisms, it's actually sort of streamlined their production processes and allowed them to actually reduce their costs rather than adding to them. So that's one example where company is directly involved in harvesting natural capital as part of their business model. Giving you an example of a more indirect case where we feel that extinction accounting is, is really sincere because the investment in conserving the environment does not have a direct financial benefit, is the issue of rhino poaching. There have been a, a number of organizations that have banded together to come up with a solution to, or at least a partial solution to this issue of rhino poaching. 
from introducing initiatives to get companies or introducing initiatives where customers purchase uh, special shopping bags and a, and a portion of that is then donated over to, to environmental conservation initiatives, to contributions of total sales, to developing educational plans that can be rolled out in areas, bearing in mind that very often the people who are actually involved in carrying out the poaching in the actual poacher is not going and poaching these animals because you know he has no respect for the environment or he just doesn't care. But it's because this person is probably economically desperate. He's unemployed, he has no source of income, he has a family to feed. This really is the only alternative for him, the only way that he can actually survive. So there's been a, an effort to try and raise awareness in those areas where poaching is prevalent, to try and create sort of spin-off opportunities, obviously before COVID-19, involving ecotourism, to try and tackle the underlying socioeconomic problems that are associated with poaching. Jill and I wrote a, a full paper on that, and one of the reasons why we felt that this was a good example of extinction accounting in action is because in the first example, a person who, or, or a third party looking at the facts might say, well, the company is not genuinely committed to the environment. The company is only interested in maximizing profit. And it just so happens that maximizing profit happens to go hand in hand with, with protecting the environment. But in the second example, there is no direct financial benefit that accrues to the company from getting involved in these anti-poaching initiatives. It's all a case of we have incurred these costs the only benefit that we might receive is some type of, of informal uh, marketing or informal publicity because our company has been associated with these anti-poaching initiatives. But at the end of the day, these companies are still investing financial resources. In some cases, those financial resources are quite substantial to try and tackle this particular environment. There is a considerable amount that can be done in terms of financing, consumers flexing the muscle, and better supply chain accountability. We spoke with Peck Shabao, one of our guests in the Deforestation podcast, about this. I think there is a great deal that can be done. Um, of course, the most powerful actors uh, are the ones that are actually in the agricultural supply chain. And many of them, as I mentioned, made efforts to go back in their supply chain to trace and to uh, make sure that they only source from certified buyers, and there are certification systems in place, not just for palm oil, but for other um, crops that have uh, that are linked to deforestation, such as soy, such as beef as well. So setting these standards in place is, is really an important first step in getting clear standards across the industry. And even within these standards, there are, you know, it's important to note that there are different levels of ambition. For instance, when we're talking about palm oil, Indonesia and Malaysia have their own certification. There is also an additional voluntary certification called the RSPO. And then there are also some other certification systems that are even more stringent. So, you know, each company is free to set its own level of ambition. But in my opinion, if we need to get to where we're trying to go, the highest possible level of ambition is really critical. So that's one thing. What banks and other financial institutions can do, of course, I think it's a really impressive trend over the past year that we're seeing not just banks, but also asset managers, asset owners, insurance providers, basically all the players across the financial industry take note of this problem and think very seriously about how they can not just decarbonize their own lending and financial activities, but invest positively to support forests. So 
we've seen like many banks, many asset managers set up funds dedicated to preventing deforestation, very large funds along the lines of several hundreds of millions or billions. And these may seem like large numbers, but again, <laughs> this is only kind of the first elementary step towards the kind of figures that we need. And we're all waiting very anxiously to see what kind of projects these committed funds go towards supporting. And I think maybe looking at the role of the individual consumer, there is a great deal that people can do to change their, their lifestyle habits. So, of course, looking out for these labels, educating yourself on the issues and making sure that you shop responsibly, shop locally wherever possible. And, you know, if you have to buy products with that are possibly linked to deforestation, ensuring that you support brands or companies that have made a clear and legitimate commitment to helping to address the issue. I asked Professor Ali Jones, Director of the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglia Ruskin University, what he would recommend everyone to read to understand the economics and the financial implications of biodiversity. The executive summary of the Descripta review, because that does give you a really good route into the economics and the the sort of economic risk of biodiversity in particular. So that, that gives us the sort of the language around natural capital and that approach. That's an important sort of primer for where current economics is, because that reviews everything. And it also probably will be a good indicator of where we think government thinking will go over the next few years. And that'll underpin things like future task force for natural capital, financial disclosures, or anything like that. And maybe the other one that could be, actually, is a report we did for Lloyds of London a few years ago around food risk. And that looked at systemic risk and looked at that sort of cascade through the food system just to see what type of insurance products might be impacted. And the short summary of that was all of them. But that gives us an idea of the sort of scenarios that we could then build within the finance sector to understand how this risk from the big economic risk could cascade into different aspects of finance, whether that's you know insurance, banking, investment, those could be really good. And anything around the donor economics as a potential solution. And there are some good short summaries and cities around the world, Amsterdam, have done quite a lot of work around implementing the donor economics locally, but then Bristol, Cambridge, lots of cities in the UK. I recommend all of those, particularly Donut Economics, which is one of my favourite books. I asked Alex whether we're starting to build the right toolkit. We are starting to. I'm much more hopeful than I have been in the past, but there is also a danger that, I mean, weirdly, that we go too far too quickly in embracing a particular solution that takes us down the wrong route. So there's a risk that we suddenly say, well, the, the answer is to put a financial value on everything, stick it in our cost-benefit analysis, and it'll all be fine. So while we do need to urgently embrace and engage with all of this, we also need to have in the back of our mind, actually, what is it that we're trying to do? What are we trying to protect so that we're qualitatively thinking about what these quantitative results might mean? And what other concepts should we be aware of whilst also being aware of that risk of following down the wrong routes? So this idea that there is a set amount of capital within biodiversity that we can consider alongside other sorts of capital, whether that's human capital or manufactured capital, whichever model of capital that we use. Um, I think that's a really interesting way of incorporating it into decision making and into finance but there's also a risk that we start to quantify things and consider capital in a substitutable way with other capital as we do with other things. And that's where the risk comes. So natural capital is very different to the other capitals that we use. 
you get rid of that capital, you can't remanufacture it. I mean, it, it's good to be thinking about how we quantify things and bring it into decision making. But we need to think about what we're quantifying and ensure that we don't increase the risk by putting everything into a natural capital box and then thinking we've solved the problem. That brings our six part biodiversity series to a close. We have learned a tremendous amount and we hope that you have too. For my part, I come away somewhat in awe of the magnitude of the task we have before us, but also with some hope that solutions are being deployed, improved and scaled up. I have learned that the problem of biodiversity loss requires a systems thinking approach in which we realise the interconnectedness of everything and we need to adopt a holistic, integrated approach that doesn't shy from the magnitude of the task ahead. Where are we at the end of this podcast journey? For me, it's a mixture of hope and realism. I hope the whole series has helped build awareness with the real issues and challenges. The solutions outlined in this last podcast show that progress is possible. All of this starts with a willingness to learn and engage. But as Professor Alan Jones outlined, we're still only just getting started on understanding the problem. That means that we need to continually reflect, listen, and learn. I'm particularly taken by the regular references to engage. The sustainability challenge we face are deeply interconnected with climate change, with society, with nature, and the economy. I believe we can only solve them if we focus on improving our understanding and be willing to change our everyday work and laboring every day. As we learn more, we can become better. And most critical of all is the engaging, listening, and collaborating with others, especially those living closest to the biodiversity that we seek to improve. Thank you for listening to this biodiversity focus series, a collaboration between the International Business of Federated Hermes and Gordian Advice. I'm Ethan Devitt. And I'm Nick Spencer.